morning, everyone. Hello, and welcome to our Sunday morning Dharma talk. I'm Deb Milkey, and I'm one of the lay teachers here at Minnesota's Zen Meditation Center. It's good to see all of you here on Labor Day weekend, so, and a hot day, too. A few months ago, I gave a talk on chutes and ladders, the game of karma or cause and effect, winning and losing. And during this talk, I recited a short poem by a Chinese nun named Keidu. I'm taking one of the lines from that poem for my talk today and would like to expand on the idea of ordinary affairs. Um, here's the poem, which is also on the bulletin. So if you have access to that, um, feel free to recite it with me. Um, I'm not going to chant it. I'm just going to do a, just an ordinary reading. Drop off the bodies. The river of the world will never end. Stately and grand. Nothing to show but the inner master. When morning comes, change the water, light the incense. Everything is in the ordinary affairs of the everyday world. So this was written by Kedu hundreds of years ago. And you can find it in the Daughters of Emptiness, a collection of Chinese nun poems. So today I would like to talk to you about the connection to the everyday in Zen practice. I'm relying on my own experiences, Buddhist teachers at MZMC, um, writers inside and outside of Buddhist practice, and Dogen, one of our founders of the Soto Zen lineage. But you also have your own experiences of the everyday world and have practices, beliefs, and concepts that make your own lives what they are. So this is part of the teaching, to listen both to our own teachings and to those of others. And I hope some of this will be helpful for your practice. John, would you help me by passing out some leaves. And these are little branches, they're elderberry leaves, and you can just take a leaf. Why don't you pass some of those branches down back? Because there we go. And here, I'm going to take a couple over here. Yeah, there's these little. There you go. And you can pass these back. There you go. And just pass, pass them back, because they'll just take less time. Thank you. And if you have any leftovers, John will collect uh, the branches and the leaves. You can just hold on to them for now, and it'll become clearer later what you can do, or you can do whatever you want with them. <laughs> well, not whatever, but anyway. <laughs> um, so every year, uh, or most years, I pick out a naturalist topic to investigate. And this has ranged from ferns to geology, wildflowers to astronomy, insects, spiders and their webs, 
mammals, birds, and reptiles. And these are topics uh, Benton, my partner, has also looked at and studied. Um, as we go up to the Boundary Waters, it's nice to have a naturalist topic. Um, but uh, some years they don't fit my interest and I may go back to previous topics. And they've also begun to overlap so much each year that I'm thinking about not coming up with new ones, but combining them or just repeating them. We've been going up for over 30 years, so there's quite a few topics there. This year, uh, I had the experience of going for a walk on a very misty, foggy morning. And one short fir tree, about white fir, about, um, actually pine tree, eight feet tall, had over 20 spider webs on it, um, called bowl and doily spider webs. And I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're like a, a little white bowl and a little white doily underneath them, all caught in like the pine tree um, needles. And I swear they weren't there the day before. And I've only seen them on these very misty, foggy mornings. So I went back after the sun came out and in the afternoon when the fog was all gone, and they were all gone, maybe. So I used a magnifying glass and found these ultra-fine webs that were there with a tiny little spider in the middle, but virtually invisible during the day, during the sun. I think you've probably seen them, yeah. Um, and so it's like I bring this up because what, when we see or sense the ordinary world, we may not be seeing what's really there or not there. Um, sometimes this is based on our own perceptions and abilities to sense the world around us. This feels like the not knowing of Buddhism. I've also focused on simpler areas of sensory or perception. And this started with a year of focusing on the color green. Uh, green is all around us now. And we see it in the leaves, grasses, moss, and the drying up green pond lake waters. And I'll say that, John, I came up with this talk before I knew you were doing your tree walk today. So, <laughs> And uh, so one day I was out on a walk at our park, contemplating and thinking about the green leaves and grasses surrounding me, when a garbage truck rolled by with think green, think clean. <laughs> I was like, OK, that's, that's a bit bizarre. That's not what I was getting at. My thinking green was a little different. It's trying to see how I experience the sensation. How do I know what green is, and how do I interact with my understanding of green? Um, every year, our leaves and grasses are new. We know that because in the winter, the color green is almost absent from the landscape. And walking through dry, scruffy cattails in the snow and sunshine, I can visualize the greens of summer lying in wait for warmer weather. Summer turns into winter, winter turns into summer, 
and yet summer is not winter and winter is not summer. And there are even buds on the trees in the winter that shrink in the cold and expand in the warmth, waiting for the warmer days of summer, the future green of summer. It brings to mind uh, some lines from a poem by Shitu called The Harmony of Sameness and Difference. And we often will chant that poem as a part of our morning services. In the light there is darkness, but don't take it as darkness. In the dark there is light, but don't see it as light. Light and dark oppose one another like the front and back foot in walking. I didn't chant that one. <laughs> I recently read that the color green in leaves is really green light waves reflected from the leaves by chlorophyll. So maybe the actual color of leaves is purple. But then I found this, this is like outside from Rosendo. This is a purple leaf. It's like, what are you doing with your green? <laughs> um, it must be using chlorophyll, but I don't know. So, thank you for donating your dharma. And so purple, so leaves are absorbing red and blue to create their nutrition for the tree. Whites are really black because no white light waves are absorbed. And whites are blacks. Okay, whites are really black. I get confused here. Whites are really black because no light waves are absorbed. And blacks are really white because all wavelengths are absorbed. All wavelengths are reflected. Oh well, anyway. You kind of get the picture. <laughs> and I read some place too recently that you can describe a color to someone without sight who has never seen the color green. Because we think of green with other senses also, other associations. So greens and blues are cool colors associated with leaves, grass, clouds, water. Reds and yellows are warm colors associated with fire, sun. When I touch a green leaf, and you may feel free to touch your leaf here, it has a cool feeling to it. Um, it feels cooler than when I touch a brown dried leaf. And think of the taste of green. Green grapes are sweet but a lot of fruit is very sour when green. Oh, by the way, folks at home, if you do have any houseplants that are willing to give up a leaf, feel free. Otherwise, you get to use your imagination, which sometimes is even better. So, sorry for uh, kind of excluding you here a bit. So the taste. Um, Fruit is very sour when green in general. Um, green peppers taste different than red peppers. And many greens, like salad greens, have a bitter taste to them. Uh, the smell.
smell of mowed grass and crushed fresh leaves. It smells like rain to me. The leaves that you have in your hands are from an elderberry bush that we had to trim this weekend. And the sound of leaves blowing and rustling in the wind is the sound of green. Some of us um, from the Zen Center recently made a trip to Dakota sites near Fort Snelling as a part of healing and storytelling by Reverend Jim Baird Jacobs. Um, and aspects of these stories for me were deeply disturbing and horrifying. But I kept contact with the grass and the leaves around me for support. Um, listening to the leaves and the wind was a very important part of my experience and helped kind of that settling down when things are too much. And some of us are taking the Mountains and Waters Sutra class right now. And what we're told is that mountains and waters themselves are the sutra. They're the teaching of Dharma. And that's the way I feel about the leaves and grasses. Okay, driving home after being dawn here Wednesday night last week, I turned on NPR classic radio and what was playing was called Green. And it's like, okay, now this is just very strange. <laughs> and it's an orchestral street suite by uh, Michael Tork and um, from his album named One. I thought the song sounded more purple to me. So I was like, well, why did he call this green? And I looked it up and this is what he had to say about why he called his um, piece green. It was kind of a lot of dissonance and um, tempo changes and a lot of energy. Um, he said it reflected inexperienced freshness something that is unseasoned and youthful. So green, I guess, is also a stage in our lives that when we're young and inexperienced, um, kind of like a green twig. So why does this matter and why is this a part of a talk on Buddhism? Does this kind of thinking or investigation help make us more compassionate or wiser? And can this help make us feel more connected to our world, you know, the universe, other beings? It's a question I ask myself. And I go to the Heart Sutra also. And for those of you that don't know, the Heart Sutra is chanted by Buddhists around the world and at this Zen center most mornings. Um, it, both affirms the concrete world of our sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness, and also negates it at the same time. Um, so for those of you who would like to join me, it's just the first three lines, and um, we'll, we'll try to do this chanting style. Um, <coughs> And if you don't know it, you can just listen. That's fine. Okay, and I'll ask for Ben's help a little bit here. 
Okay. Heart of great perfect wisdom sutra Avalokiteshvara when deeply practicing Krishna Paramita clearly saw that all five aggregates are empty and thus relieved all suffering. Shariputra form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself forms sensations, perceptions, formations, and consciousness are also like this. So green is and is not green. Spider webs can be seen and not seen. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch. We find ourselves in this concrete world of form along with our sensations, perceptions, ideas, beliefs, but we also pay attention to the fluid, changeable, illusory, impermanent nature of this concrete world, and also about our ideas about ourselves and others. And the start of it, this is the perfection of wisdom that relieves all suffering. It's like, what? This is a done deal? It's, it relieves all suffering. This is. I won't explain that one at all. Another question. So I'm going to change directions a bit. We're going to go away from green um, and address kind speech as another area of focus for practice in the ordinary affairs of the everyday world. Kind speech is a part of the eightfold path. And I won't be going into that, but it's a traditional part of Buddhist um, teachings, if you consider it to be an aspect of right speech. So I'm going to get Dogen's help here. And we don't get There we go. And you know, I don't know how many of you have tried to read Dogen. Um, <laughs> Apparently quite a few of you. Anyway, this, you know, he could be kind of obtuse and difficult and he's Dogen, right? <laughs> but uh, this section actually is very approachable, so um, don't be afraid. Um, this is a section on kind speech. So he says, kind speech means when meeting living beings, First of all, to feel compassion for them and to offer caring and loving words. Broadly, it is there being no rude or bad words. In secular societies, there are polite customs of asking others if they are well. In Buddhism, there are the words, take good care of yourself. And there is the disciples greeting, how are you? 
speaking with the feeling of compassion for living beings as if they were babies is kind speech. We should praise those who have virtue and should pity those who lack virtue. I'm going to repeat that because I'm going to go back to it. We should praise those who have virtue and should pity those who lack virtue. Through love of kind speech, kind speech is gradually nurtured. This kind speech, which is ordinarily neither recognized nor experienced, manifests itself before us. While the present body and life exist, we should enjoy kind speech, and we will not regress or deviate through many ages and many lives. Whether in defeating adversaries or in promoting harmony among gentlefolk, kind speech is fundamental. To hear kind speech spoken to us directly makes the face happy and the mind joyful. To hear kind speech indirectly etches an impression in the heart and in the mind, in the soul. Remember, kind speech arises from a loving mind, and the seed of a loving mind is compassion. We should learn that kind speech has the power to turn around the heavens. It's not merely the praise of ability. Go Dogen. <laughs> So um, one of the translated words in this paragraph is the word pity. And we should praise those who have virtue and should pity those who lack virtue. We tend to talk a lot about compassion and some about empathy. And figuring these out for ourselves is a lifetime practice. However, we sometimes banish pity to the underworld as being unworthy especially like self-pity or othering people by looking down on someone with pity. But I look at pity as the poor second cousin to compassion and empathy, and is sometimes more accessible when we have hit rock bottom and can't find our way to compassion, or when compassion asks too much from us. It may be too obscure, too idealistic, something that is more concept and aspiration than practice. You can have compassion for others, empathy with others, but you tend to take pity on someone or something. And pity really seems to come from feeling separate from others rather than feeling a connection between self and others. Sometimes, though, pity is what's most needed or the only thing possible. And what happens when there's no pity left? With no pity, there's no mercy, and this can lead to some pretty horrible consequences. I think back on these stories of the horrible circumstances for the Dakota people in the Sioux Indian uprising, the stories were told a couple weeks ago. And leading up to this and after the aftermath, mercy was pretty much absent. 
Now, I don't particularly want to be pitied. Pretty much nobody wants this. But it may be the last gateway to compassion. So please take pity on me. Don't hurt me. Um, I used to watch old movies when growing up, and one was a coliseum where there's a big monster, and this gladiator was on the ground saying, please don't hurt me, I'm only a medical student. Um, <laughs> that image like stuck with me. Um, and uh, I think pity towards oneself can be that first step for compassion and can be nurtured and cared for. Not to wallow in the self-pity, but because that seems counterproductive, but to search for its roots and investigate the feeling that's underlying it. Um, feeling sorry for oneself or feeling sorry for someone else nurture can let us nurture the feeling of connection with self and the healing and transformation that's possible. So don't blow out that feeble flame of pity, but see how it isn't compassion, but that it can become compassion with understanding. So the other day I had an experience um, that kind of blew me away, but and not in a good way. And I was having a lot of difficulty sleeping. So I got up and started reading, and then he decided to sit down and meditate for a while. But instead of doing just my usual um, sitting meditation, I decided to repeat a loving-kindness mantra, a metta um, meditation, just for myself. Um, and I think sometimes that level of Selfishness is actually what you need. Um, and I repeated this loving-kindness meditation until I could feel my agitation just start to relax. I may never do this again, but at the time it seemed to work really well. It was a way to relieve my own suffering. So um, what I'd like to do is just do a loving-kindness meditation. And everyone just do it for yourself. You know, we're, we're going to be okaying some self-centered behavior here. Um, because I think in the long run, it helps us be able to connect with other people. So um, a lot of you will be familiar with this, and you can join in with me at any time. Um, the first line is a little bit different than what most people do. Yeah, make yourself comfortable. Um, it's, may I be filled with loving kindness. And this helps me bring it home. And also when I'm dealing with an adversary or someone that I'm really having problems with, it also helps me engage with that other person. So, okay. Um, I'm going to do it three times and you can join in with me as you feel comfortable or want. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be well. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be peaceful and at ease. 
May I be well, may I be safe, may I be happy. May I be filled with loving kindness, may I be peaceful and at ease, may I be well, may I be safe, may I be happy. So I think um, we can repeat this as many times as we wish until it's a part of our very extraordinary, ordinary life. Um, when those times come that we feel we need it. So I'm just deciding what I want to do here because I'm taking more time. This is fine. So I will say that for me, compassion is pretty all-encompassing all way of being. And kindness seems simpler, more ordinary, and a more straightforward way of acting. And showing kindness, being kind, maybe like pity, this is another poor second cousin to compassion. And yet, it may be easier and softer to practice. And if you practice kindness with everyone, including yourself, it may keep us from singling out compassion only for people we feel need it, like people with disabilities or difficult circumstances, when acting with compassion may be more likely to be taken for, mistaken for pity. And honestly, sometimes I don't know the difference. Um, internally, I don't know if I'm really being compassionate or really just taking pity on someone. So my last story is about my helping my mother move into assisted living, which she's moving on Thursday. Um, we've been downsizing a two-bedroom apartment um, with a sunroom into a much smaller one-bedroom place for two people. But helping her doesn't seem like work to me, and it's not based on pity. Although my 91-year-old mother is significantly in decline with her health, with a lot of arthritis and weakness right now. She has difficulty getting up from her wheelchair and transferring to a chair. And so when she gets up, okay, I'll demonstrate this one. When she gets up, she just has to like count to three or 10 or something, and then, and then has to go turn, 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 turn. Now, my mother breaks into song with anything that sounds like words from a song. So I said, Mom, isn't there a song that's turn, turn, turn? And so uh, we looked it up on the iPhone. And sure enough, okay, who made the song? The birds, yes. And uh, so to everything there's a season, turn, 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 a time to be born, a time to die. And she asked me, how did she get old so fast? Um, so we started singing that song with the iPhone, you know, going down in the wheelchair to go get some lunch down the hallways, and then the song Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, sung by Pentonix, came on. So we were singing with that one too, and just having a great time. We had the best time, the most precious time 
walking down the hallways. Um, the kindness was for both of us. And this to me is the ordinary affairs of this everyday world. I also found a history, and this is gonna tie back in with an earlier um, story. I found a history that she did of her own life, and she actually you know, made like 20, 30 pages of this story of her life. It talked a lot about hardships and tragedies growing up in poverty. And there, were, there was even a story, family story about the killing of a Dakota chief in Hutchinson because when her great-great-grandparents were um, in that area, this was the time of the Indian Sioux Wars when a lot of settlers from Germany and Sweden and Norway were invited to the state. Um, so this is part of uh, our heritage too. And they had homesteaded out west of here. So this is their story. One day a Dakota man came to their farmhouse and pointed at one of the younger girls named Emma. And she was wearing a red dress. Well, they figured out somehow that they didn't want to take the girl, but they wanted the red dress. So my great-great-grandparents gave it to him, and he brought his daughter by the next day, showing her wearing this red dress. Um, but this is part of our family story. And this ties into me the part of stories from another aspect, another perspective. Um, I also want to just introduce you to um, this writer, Layla Long Soldier, and I'll leave it up here. It's called Whereas. And uh, I brought this with me also to our Dakota tours, um, mostly because there's two poems in here that I'm not gonna go through, but they're long. And the title of the first one is called 38. And if you're on that trip, you know that's about the 38 Dakota um, that were executed, the largest mass ex execution in the United States. Um, so this is a really um, touching poem about that event. Um, and it brings in grass because one of the touch-off points is they were owed um, a lot of supplies and even money for exchange for the land. And those were with, withheld from them after three years of drought and a lot of starvation. And the person who had the ability to release those supplies told them, let them eat grass. And uh, so it also feels like grass can become a symbol of tragedy as well as a symbol of healing. The last thing I'd like to bring up is Zazen. And the final, this is the final ordinary fair I would like to talk, and it's the extraordinary ordinariness of Zazen. So sitting in meditation is the experience of sitting Zazen. Um, 
body sensations, thoughts, emotions, imagination, our life stories and plans, focused concentration, deep stillness, maybe even sometimes anger, fear, agitation, boredom, pain and suffering, all are the experience of Zazen. With nothing extra, nothing more or less, not inside or outside, no 30 minutes to go or five minutes left. We hear the rain, the wind, cars, birds, barking dogs, radios, shouted conversations, air conditioners, snoring, even our own heartbeat and the bells. And we sat together this morning and sometimes we sit on our own at home and yet we never really sit zazen entirely alone and aware of our sensations, feelings, and thoughts. The green that is not always green. Kindness we show by sitting and practicing zazen. And I just want to say how amazing that is. So I'm going to recite my poem again, but I've altered the words just a little bit for myself. Drop off the body and mind. The river of the world will never end. Upright and serene, nothing to show but the inner host. When morning comes, get out of bed, turn on the lights. Everything is in the ordinary affairs of the everyday world. So thank you all of you for sharing this with me. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I would like to entertain questions, comments. And if you're on Zoom, just either unmute yourself or raise your hand or gesticulate wildly and I'll try to see you. <laughs> yes. So when you said feeling, uh, you're feeling behind the pig, right? Yeah. So when you think of that and what the feeling was was me, that compassion is love, pity is love for me. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's part of the understanding where your pity is coming from. There's this love hate, and then you can kind of like, okay, let's see what's going on here. Let's see where the love is, let's see where the hate is, and then it can become yeah, just pity. But I, I, I agree that you get that kind of combination going on. Yeah. And one more thing. You yeah. Said the extraordinary, that's an ordinary song. Today in meditation, every meditation I've ever done in my life is different. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's like, how can that be? You're the same person, aren't you? Like sitting, facing a wall. <laughs> but it's different. And you can't, I, I can't anticipate when I'm going to have like that great sip, right? <laughs> that concentrated, and, you know, the thoughts come, but they go, versus that. <laughs> and I can't tell, because I can be all agitated and I sit and it's gone. Or I can just be calm as can be and I sit and like, whoa, what's coming up here? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Thank you.
Uh, and Judy, you have a question, please. You can unmute yourself and then we'll, I'll let you know if we can hear you well. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, you. Can you hear me? If you could speak up just a little bit louder, I don't know how to adjust this. Thank you. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, and I think it, so much of what you said, um, I can see that when you interact, there's immediacy there. And uh, what I what I know in myself is that when I have encounters with nature or others, there's this reticence to connect. There's this, should I connect? Should I, can I be here? And what I was really touched by in your talk was your your ability to be there in a situation. And that was very encouraging to me. Thank you. Well, thank you, Judy. What do you do to connect when, when you feel that, that you're not having that connection? What do you do to help yourself? That's a great question. And you don't have to answer it, but. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think we all have probably different techniques or ways that we do try to encourage ourselves to be more connected with our with all the own feelings and with other people. Thank you, Judy. Katie. Yeah, talking about compassion versus pity, and, and sometimes it feels like pity is a way of throwing a boundary. Mm -hmm. Is that is is claiming that you will not connect. Is it feeling empathy for the person, but putting up a, a slight wall so that you don't get uh, absorbed into their suffering? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point. Because if anyone makes you feel like you pity, you already say, I don't want to be that person. Right? I, yeah. I just don't want to feel or go through what they're going through. And then it can become a wall. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to go with Barbara, then Carrie. So I think it is a, a difficult one because there is not a lot of those emotions in what you just said that we kind of were afraid of what they're going through. It's so extreme that we get fear about it. So we have to remember to always combine it with our compassion because we know in ourselves that life just isn't fair. Yeah. And that most of the time, you know, depending on people's circumstances throughout their life, they can end up in very poor situations. So I think you have to always remember that and pair the two, so that you don't, um, so that you don't misunderstand or judge too much. Thank you, Barbara. Carrie. Yeah. Inspired, um, and your talk is just your uh, tributes to your decades of practice, um, and that how you brought your practice to the ordinary, and and and, and have it explain how it is all dharma. Um, and I, I also appreciate the uh, the poem from the Daughters of Emptiness and from those uh, Zen nuns. Uh, I I just recently. 
off the book um, a while back, and and reading those poems just uh, is kind of mind blowing and opening that hundreds and hundreds of years ago we're all just doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, I love how you changed the poem to update it to to now, right? And there, you know, there are some things obviously that are different, and there are some things that are really the same. Yeah. And a lot of the feelings and sensations and the uh, attention to nature in the poems come through, which is very helpful to me to remind me to attention yeah. yeah and I know that um, if we have things in our lives that we connect with to kind of have them nearby and recite them or chant them is kind of a way to keep ourselves um, open and also reassuring ourselves because I think you know if we try to be like always so tough. <laughs> it's, it's not that easy. I mean, this world is a very difficult place. And, you know, we heard stories from the 1860s, but things like that are going on right now. And it's, I think if you try to have compassion, it can be very, very hard. So I think some of these practices that help us say, yes, this is extremely hard. But sometimes I need to let go of that too. And I even think occasionally, okay, this is, block your ears, spiritual bypassing is just fine once in a while. <laughs> okay, you heard it here. <laughs> not, to, not to do it all the time, but once in a while, I'd say just uh, I can take one more question, or we can move on to announcements, because I think we have some of those. Please, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Deb, for your talk. Um, I agree with everything you said. You know, it's nice to not set pity out there like it's some bad thing. It's just part of life, you know, you don't need to ignore it. I want to get your thought on one thing. I loved how you had us touch the lead. And yeah, it's cool, isn't it? And you're a big camper, and John, I hope, no matter how warm it is, I hope a lot of us go on John's walk because he knows the names of things, you know? It feels like every year we get more disconnected from our natural surroundings, right? So we guard and then we camp, but come on. We're all disconnected. We're sitting in super comfortable AC right now, and it's like roasting <laughs> outside. Like, this is our life, right? So, but do you have any thoughts about that? You brought up connection. And, you know, it is. Sometimes we want to run away to comfort, right? But sometimes you have to kind of be uncomfortable if you want to connect with nature, connect with people around you. So any thoughts you have about that? So connecting when it's uncomfortable. That's what I'm hearing. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, because nature is also very um, unforgiving sometimes. Um, we've got the very hot weather, the very cold weather. And we do in our houses separate ourselves out and live in comfort. We also live in comfort when a lot of people, most people in this world, don't. Um, so part of me says just appreciating what you have, your own life, is part of that connecting. And then sometimes doing the things that might be difficult. Um, 
like going on this um, Dakota healing, I knew this was going to be difficult for me because I know the stories and, mm -hmm. and it was, but I think it's putting yourself in those uncomfortable positions and then maybe learning and learning that there may be not so much to fear that you do have the ability to cope with the adverse things in life. Um, and that I think can help your connection. Does that make sense? Okay, thank you. Well, I'm gonna pass this on to John and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with, um, I think the camera's up there, so.